0: Well, good morning, everyone. Notice that there's a few people here this morning that I'm not sure if I've seen before or if you've only been here a few times, so obviously welcome, and we're glad that you're here with us. And I was just thinking that uh, you're entering into the middle, maybe near the end, of a series that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, We're in a series that we've titled Misfits, or misfits of the Bible. And the goal of this series has been to discover and to see how the black sheep, the rebels, the ostracized, the uh, seemingly ordinary, uh, unqualified, uh, the unexpected individuals of Scripture uh, have been changed by God. Uh, And then God has used them to change the world. And so we've been looking week after week after week at different individuals of Scripture that kind of fit that misfit definition uh, and how they encountered God and how God changed them and then how God used them to change others and to advance His kingdom uh, and to promote uh, the gospel. Uh, And every week almost whether it's been me speaking or Al or, or Brian or Paul, I find myself asking a similar question. And the question is this, does God really do that today? I mean, obviously he did it back in Bible times because we read the stories And so it would be really bad if I said, well, I don't think he did it back then either. I believe the stories of Scripture. But does God still do that kind of change in the lives of people who commit themselves to him today? And if he does, how does he accomplish that? By what does he cause that change to take place I was looking through my library in my basement uh, this week and I came across a book. And if you're around my age and you've been around the church for a while, it's probably a book you're familiar with. Uh, And if you were a teenager, when I was a teenager, it was quite exciting that a Christian-based movie came out that actually had a Hollywood actor and we were able to watch it. And the movie was The Cross and the Switchblade. Everyone, anyone know The Cross and the Switchblade? The story of Dave Wilkerson, uh, who was a country bumpkin who felt the call of the Lord and went to New York City and started working amongst the gangs in the inner city of New York. And one of the gang members, so the, his book was The Cross and the Switchblade, the movie, The Cross and the Switchblade. And if, again, dating myself, but if you remember Erica Strata, who was on the show Chips, he was... He was, uh, and Pat Boone, I think, played David Wilkerson. And, and Erica Estrada played the role of this notorious gang member, Nikki Cruz. Uh, Nicky Cruz eventually uh, wrote a book, Run, Baby, Run. And I just was remembering and bringing to mind uh, the story about David Wilkerson and the story about this gang leader, Nicky Cruz. And, and so I Googled Nicky Cruz, and came to his website and, and, and found just a brief biography uh, on him, or autobiography. I don't know who wrote it, but uh, it says, Nicky Cruz's story is a remarkable one. Born of 18 children to Puerto Rican parents, Nicky suffered severe physical and mental abuse as a child. When he was 15, his father sent him to visit an older brother in New York, but Nicky didn't stay with his brother long, instead choosing to make it on his own. By age 16, he'd become a member of the notorious Brooklyn street gang known as the Mau Mau's. Within six months, he became their president and fearlessly ruled the streets as warlord of one of the gangs most dreaded by rivals and police. Lost in a cycle of drugs, alcohol, and brutal violence, his life took a tragic turn for the worst after a friend and fellow gang member was horribly stabbed and beaten and died in Nikki's arms. As Cruz's reputation grew, so did his haunting nightmares. Arrested countless times, a court-ordered psychiatrist pronounced Nicky's fate as headed to prison, the electric chair, and hell. No authority figure could reach Cruz until he met a skinny street preacher named David Wilkerson. He disarmed Nicky, showing him something he'd never known before, relentless love. His interest in the young thug was persistent. Nicky beat him up, spit on him, and on one occasion seriously threatened his life. Yet the love of God remained, stronger than any adversary adversary Nicky had ever encountered. Finally, Wilkerson's presentation of the gospel message and the love of Jesus melted the thick walls of Nicky's heart. He received the forgiveness, love, and new life that can only come through Jesus. Since then, he has dedicated that life to helping others find the same freedom. In the 40 years that have passed since coming to Christ, Nicky Cruz has ministered around the world, speaking to hurting people in all walks of life. He has reached thousands of inner-city gang members, and he speaks to their need from his own experience. And uh, on, on the website, it says that uh, he's in his 80s now, that Nikki Cruz has shared the gospel that changed his life to over 50 million people. And so I read that story and I thought of the movie and I realized, yeah, God does change people in, in radical, remarkable, miraculous ways. But is that just kind of a rare story? Is is that the norm? Is God in the business of changing people's lives? And the question I think is most important is do we believe that God changes the lives of those who put their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He's done on the cross? Do we really believe that a person that's been living far from God, who's turned their back on God, has done things that are horrible that Is carrying all sorts of baggage can God take that person and change them into an entirely different person and the answer if you've grown up in church especially is yes of course he can because that's what we've been trained to say but do you believe that do I believe that I shared when I was speaking on Rahab not too long ago. That that was a challenge for me at several points in my walk with the Lord. I encountered people and situations where I truly questioned whether God could really make that kind of change in that setting, in that context. In that person. And time and time and time again, God has proven that He is in the business of changing lives. And even when I've doubted it, He's proved my doubts to be wrong. And it reminds me of those scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Or in Romans 6, where Paul says, Formerly you were a slave to sin, but in Christ you're a slave. To righteousness. And so the truth of Scripture and what we uh, proudly proclaim from this pulpit here at Auburn is this, no matter who you are, what you've done, what your baggage is, God is more than willing and able to change you if you'll put your faith in the person and work of his son, Jesus. And so this morning, we're continuing in this Misfit series, but I wanted to do something a little bit different today, just a little bit of a twist. And as you've probably figured out based on our scripture reading this morning, I want to take a look at a very small letter that's near the back of the Bible that often we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to, Uh, but it's such a powerful illustration of how the gospel changes people's lives whether you are someone who is a sworn enemy of God, whether you're a fugitive on the run, or even whether you are a leader in a church. Philemon shows us that God is in the business of changing and continuing to change those who put their faith in his son. And so this morning, I just want to take a look at this story in Philemon. So if you've got your Bible, it's right before Hebrews. It's just usually one page in your Bible. Uh, turn to Philemon and just keep your finger on it. And we're going to be uh, looking at it for the rest of the morning. And, and we'll, uh, from time to time, look at specific verses in Philemon. But, but what's the story behind Philemon? And, and I'm going to take a little bit of artistic freedom In in, in giving you the story behind this letter uh, to Philemon, it it centers around a young man, a young man who lives in a large household, uh, who's well taken care of, uh, his needs are taken care of. His primary support doesn't come from his mom or his dad, however, Uh, his primary support comes from his master, because this young man's a slave. And I know in, in our mindset of today, you know, that's such a horrible word and horrible connotations come to mind. But, but slavery back in this young man's day was, was different than slavery would have been 100 or, or 200 years ago. Uh, and despite the fact that he was well looked after, his master had a reputation for treating his slaves As if they were his own children. Despite that, this young man decided that he didn't want to live under the restraints of his master any longer, and so he decided he was going to bolt. And on the way out the door, he stole something, and off he went. And as anyone who is running from the law, running from their master, might do, he ran to the big city probably hiding by day and at night, traveling around. And during his travels, he bumped into someone uh, who befriended him and started to tell him about Jesus. And the more he talked about Jesus, the more this young runaway slave had questions and more questions. And eventually this new friend realized, I can't answer all these questions. I need to to." Introduce this runaway slave friend to my teacher. Uh, And so he introduces this runaway slave to this older man. Well, this older man was in prison under house arrest. And this runaway slave said, oh, this was a setup. I'm busted for sure. But then he realized that this older man who was in prison in prison for preaching the gospel, telling people about this Jesus. He was the real deal. And he really cared and really was willing to take the time with this runaway slave. And so he answered this young man's questions. And eventually this young man gave his heart to Jesus. And over a period of time, a really wonderful relationship developed Between this older man who was a prisoner under house arrest and this young runaway slave who had now given his heart to the Lord. Eventually, the the young man must have shared his full story with the older man that he was actually a runaway slave. Not only was he a runaway slave, he, he also was a thief. The older man realized as much use as this young man was to him, running errands for him and and, and talking to him and listening to him. As strong as the bond was that had developed between the two, the older man realized, realized that this young man needed to go back to his master and make things right, regardless of what the cost might be. But the older man promised this young runaway slave that he would plead with the master and that he would ask the master to not only forgive the slave, but to restore him to service and to receive him as a brother in the Lord. So that's the story behind the letter. And yes, a little bit fabricated. A couple of the, the uh The details I've added in just to make the story flow a bit better. Some of the things we're not really sure of. But we are sure of who the main characters of the story are. And uh, there's a number of names in Philemon. And I, I saved the praise team from having to read the last few where there's a few more names. But there's three main characters and each of the main characters have a problem. And the first main character is the old man in prison who's none other than the apostle Paul, uh, and he's in prison in Rome because he's been preaching the gospel. Uh, and so I guess you could say, well, that's a problem, not that he's preaching the gospel, the problem that he's in prison under house arrest, because he's been preaching the gospel. But that was OK with Paul, because as Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." I know it causes me all sorts of grief. I know I get in trouble with all sorts of people, but I'm not ashamed of it. Nothing's going to stop me preaching the gospel. And just think of it I'm under house arrest. And while he was under house arrest in Rome, uh, it's believed that he wrote four of the books of the New Testament the prison epistles. Some he wrote, much he dictated. And could you imagine the guards that were standing there listening to Paul dictate Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. I think it's going to be interesting one day in heaven. We're going to come across people. When did you give your heart to the Lord? Oh, I was a prisoner. Oh, who are you guarding, Paul? So Paul, that wasn't a problem. But he did have another problem. The problem was, is he had a young runaway thief slave on his hands. And he knew that the slave needed to go back to the master and make things right to to seek restitution. Which leads us to the second character of the story, and that's the slave. And his name is Onesimus. Onesimus has run to Rome, and we're not quite sure how he made contact with Paul there's a good chance that Paul knew the master and we'll talk about that in a second but somehow Onesimus made his way to Rome made contact with Paul the prisoner and came to a saving relationship uh, with Jesus and became very helpful very useful to Paul Onesimus had a problem and his problem was this He knew that even though he had repented of his sin and received God's forgiveness, he knew that he needed to go back to the Master and seek his forgiveness. And that may incur a huge cost. He was a runaway slave and a thief, which carried with it a huge penalty. Roman law really put no restrictions on the authority and the punishment a slave owner could put on its slave. And so as a runaway slave and as a thief, Onesimus at a minimum faced being brandished as a fugitive for the rest of his life. But very well could have been beaten and put to death. That was Onesimus' problem. That's what he faced, but he knew he had to go back and make things right. And then the third character in the story is Philemon. Philemon is the master. He most likely came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul. He was a respected church leader. He was a respected slave owner in his day. The church of Colossus met in his home. But he was faced with a problem. Onesimus had run away and had caused Philemon and his household a great cost one that maybe Philemon had already had to replace perhaps he had to go and buy another slave to to carry on the tasks that Onesimus was doing not quite sure what this debt was that Onesimus had incurred but at this point Philemon was having to cover the cost of that debt maybe Philemon wasn't feeling really forgiving at the time and yet he's faced with the problem Paul is urging, pleading with Philemon to forgive Onesimus. Philemon has another problem. Paul's asking him to forgive and to restore, to receive Onesimus as a brother in the Lord. And here's the problem. No other slave owner would have done that at the time. What would the other slave owners think of Philemon? What kind of precedent would Philemon been setting? What would the impact be if Philemon was to follow Paul's pleading and to forgive and to restore and to receive Onesimus? You see, the, probably the major theme of the letter to Philemon is forgiveness. That as God is a forgiving God, so too should those who have given their heart to Jesus, we should be forgiving people. But there's another theme in the letter to Philemon, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. And that is that the gospel changes people's lives. And I know I've said the word gospel many times and maybe you, you, you've heard the word gospel so many times coming to church and I'm not even really sure what the word gospel means. Let me just give you a simple definition. The gospel is the good news concerning what God has done through the person and work of Jesus. The gospel is the good news that God can save and change those who put their faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That That's the gospel. That's what saves people, that good news. And there's lots of false notions about salvation and what saves a person, how a person can have a right standing with God, how a person makes it into heaven. I was talking last week about on Facebook, there's so many people who are dying and, and the comments on these people dying is, oh, you know, finally they're going to go and be with their the other family member who's passed away and I go, these people aren't people of faith we live in a world that thinks that you know as long as you lived a good life you're going to make it to heaven that's salvation as long as you go to church you're going to make it to heaven that's salvation the bible makes it very clear that isn't how you get to heaven that's not how you get eternal life that's not how your sins are forgiven that's not how you have a right standing with god this prisoner, Paul, makes it very clear in a lot of his writings. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves, no matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter all the things that we can accomplish and attain in life. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to earn, to attain a right standing with God. We are powerless to do anything. To make things right with God. And yet, the same prisoner, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, right in the first chapter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel, the good news concerning what God has done through his son and his death on the cross, the gospel is the power of God to save and to change those who give their life to Jesus. That's the power. We're powerless. But God has the power. And what's the power? It's the gospel. It's the good news concerning what Jesus has done on the cross and who he is and who he can be. And so when I say that God is in the business of changing people's lives through the power of the gospel, that's what I mean. And as we look at this letter to Philemon, we see that God changes people's lives and he does it through the power of the gospel. And so the question we need to ask is, well, how does God change our life? Where is this change evident. And if it's true that he changes our life and it should be evident, then we should be able to see it in the story of Philemon and Onesimus and Paul while he's in prison writing this letter. And I think we do. And I I, I see three areas that God changes us through the power of the gospel. He changes our attitude and our behavior. He changes our relationship with each other. And he changes our relationship with God. And so let's just, uh, for, the, for the last moments of our message this morning, let's just take a look at those three areas. So through the power of the gospel, God changes our behavior and our attitude. And we see this in the story. Now, by the time we get Paul's letter to Philemon, significant change has already taken place in the lives of Paul and Onesimus and Philemon. Another thing I should say right off the start as well is that not all gospel change is automatic and instantaneous. Yes, we become a new creation the moment we put our faith in Jesus. But there's a lot of life change along the journey of faith, which is a lifelong process. We call it sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. It takes work and it takes time. And so when I talk about change, there's instant change, but there's also lifelong change. God enables us through his spirit, and and Jesus has made it possible for us to achieve that kind of change through him and through his uh, enabling. And so if you look at this story, I'm not going to look at all the characters, but if, if we just look at Paul, for instance, maybe Paul and Onesimus. And see the change that the gospel has brought about in their life. I think we can illustrate the point that God changes us in our behavior, in our attitude through the power of the gospel. And if all we had was the letter of Philemon to know about Paul, we probably would have a different picture of, of what Paul's character was like. Uh, Paul was kind, uh, compassionate, caring, loving, Sensitive. But if that's all you knew about Paul, you would miss a whole lot about who Paul really was, and especially who Paul used to be. If you got your Bible, just flip back to to Acts and see what Luke in Acts 8 had to say about Paul who back then, but 25 years earlier, was known as Saul. Let's get a picture of Paul's behavior and attitude 25 years earlier. So just near the end of chapter 7 of Acts, it says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved, or Paul, approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, or Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women, and put them in prison. And if you flip over to chapter nine, verse one, meanwhile Saul or Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Doesn't sound like a real caring, sensitive, kind, compassionate, loving individual. If you turn over to First Timothy chapter 1, and if you don't want to flip, you can just, I'll flip and just listen to me read it, but listen to what Paul had to say about himself back then. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And so we got the Paul of Philemon, who is radically different than the Paul of Luke's description of Tim, Paul's own words of what he was like 25 years earlier. What happened? What caused the change? Well, Paul goes on in First Timothy and he says, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What happened to Paul? Gospel change. God changed him. God poured out his grace and mercy. Paul, the worst of sinners, becomes an example of what God can do in the life of a sinner. The gospel changes our behavior And our attitude. And then there's Onesimus. And flip back to Philemon if you flipped away from it. Onesimus. A runaway slave, slave. A thief. Yet now he's willing to face the cost. And make things right. To repent. To be willing to put himself back into the service of Philemon. Something's happened in Onesimus' life. What caused the change? The gospel. I love verse 11. And you have to know, Onesimus means literally useful. So now read verse 11. Paul's little play on words. Formerly he, so Onesimus, so formerly useful was useless to you, but now, useful has become useful, both to you and to me. Something's changed. Onesimus has given his life to Jesus, and now he's going back to Philemon, useful to Philemon, helpful, a willing servant. What happened? The power of the gospel. That's what happened. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is gospel change evident in our lives? How have we responded to the forgiveness that we 've received for our sin? Would people use the words that, that Luke and Paul himself used in Timothy to describe himself twenty five years earlier, or would they use the words that we would describe Paul when we read Philemon? Do people look at our lives and go, "Wow?" That person is caring and sensitive and and, and loving and kind, compassionate. Or do they see us living out our Christian life and go, boy, that person's bitter, crusty, hostile, causing disunity wherever they go. See, God wants to change us so that we can be useful, useful for his kingdom and to bring him glory. And the power of the gospel is such that it can change and is supposed to change our behavior and our attitude. So that's one area that we see where the gospel changes, changes the behavior and attitude. And then the second area is that it changes our relationships with others. Could you imagine the dinnertime conversation with Philemon and his wife? And they're discussing Onesimus, who they've treated like a child. And yet he's run away and he has stolen something or he's incurred some kind of a debt. They're hurt. They're disappointed. They're frustrated. They want justice to be done. And then on the other hand, can you imagine Onesimus walking the streets of Rome, running into people, sharing his side of the story? talking about his master who who had so much riches, could have given him so much more. Yeah, I stole something from him, but he'll never even miss it. And yet, as we work our way through the story, Onesimus is now wanting to go back to Philemon to make things right, to seek forgiveness, restitution, and, and, and Philemon, we want to believe on his own. Or as Al, we were talking maybe with a little strong nudge from Paul. But we assume that Philemon forgave Onesimus and restored him to service. And received him as a, a brother in the Lord. You know, it's interesting. Tradition says that about 50 years after Philemon was written, uh, Ignatius, who is the uh, bishop... Uh, of Antioch, was being taken to Rome to be executed. And they had a stopover in Smyrna. And and Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Ephesus to commend the church for its bishop. And the bishop's name was Onesimus. Now, we can't be 100% sure it was the same one, but it'd be really cool if it was the same Onesimus. Which tells me the 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 extent of the of the restoration and and, and restitution uh, that happened when Onesimus came and 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 confronted or allowed Philemon to confront him, and the restoration that took place. You see, restoration, Christians getting along with each other—that's important. To God. I love in uh, Matthew 5 where, where it says that if, you, if you've come to worship and all of a sudden you remember, not that you've got something against somebody else, but you remember that someone has got something against you, that you should stop everything and go to that person and restore unity and harmony between the two of you. I've actually been in a breaking of bread service years ago where, where someone actually got up and walked to another pew to do that very thing. They knew that they were here to break bread and they knew that there was someone in the congregation that had been offended by something they had done or something they said and they knew that it wasn't right and they went back and they, they, they made things right with that person. That's important to God. So important that, that he gives us that uh, in Matthew chapter five. That's what I love about the table. That's what I love about celebrating communion because it reminds me that when we come to the foot of the cross, we're all equal. We're all, we're, we're all on the same footing. It doesn't matter who we are, what we are, the color of our skin, what our job is, what our background is, how much baggage we've brought into to, to uh, coming to the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter. We're all the same people. We all need the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus that was accomplished on the cross. And that's what unifies us. Like I think of Philemon and Onesimus sitting at a table with the wife and, and, and maybe other family members what would they have in common? How would they get over all the obstacles, all the dysfunction? I know the gospel. And it's the same reason that we can come to communion from all of our different backgrounds and walks of life. And yet there's something that unifies us and gives us fellowship. And that is the bond, the common bond that we have in Christ. And that's why we can have such great times together. It's because of the gospel. The gospel changes the way we relate to each other. And sometimes I think we don't get it, but you know what? The world gets it because the world watches us. The world wants to see, is there any truth to this gospel thing that these Christians talk about? And I don't think they necessarily want to hear our words all the time. They want to see us living out our life in Fellowship with each other in practice. How do we relate to our spouse? How do we relate to our kids? How do we get along while we are at church? The world is watching. And the gospel, the power of the gospel changes the way that we relate with each other. And then finally, because our time is gone, the gospel changes the way that we relate to God. And uh, I'm just going to make this point quick because it's going to lead us right into communion. And uh, uh, the, the song that uh, Daniel has chosen for us to sing next is a great song just that we can, we can think upon these things. Martin Luther said that we are all God's Onesimus. And what do you mean by that? What he was alluding to the fact is Onesimus didn't have a foot to stand on. He had no legal right. There was no claim to justice that he could go back to Philemon and expect that he would be forgiven, expect that he would be restored, expect that he would be received in any other way than as a fugitive and possibly be put to death. But look at verse 18. Let's start at verse 17. So if you, can, this is Paul saying to Philemon, if you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. And, and catch this in verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Does that sound familiar? What, what foot did Onesimus have to stand on? Before Philemon, Paul's foot. Because Paul says, you know what? If, if, if there's anything Onesimus owes, charge it to me. Charge it to me. I'll pay the debt. That, that sounds like the gospel. Because we have no foot to stand upon. We have no claim to justice to be forgiven because of our sin before a holy and just God. And yet we can say, Jesus will take our debt. And Jesus says to the Father, if he owes anything, and we do, the wages of sin is death, I'll pay the debt. I'll cover it. That's the power of the gospel. By putting our faith in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven. Our debt is paid and we can have a right relationship with God. That's that's the power of the gospel that we see working through all these stories that we've been looking at. That's how lives are changed. Paul says he wasn't ashamed of it and he went out and proclaimed it. And that same powerful message is our message. Our message to hold on to and our message to proudly and loudly proclaim so that we see other people experience life change. And it all boils down to what Jesus did on the cross for us. And that's, that's where we're going to focus now for the, for, the, for the balance of our service. And Daniel, why don't you bring your team on up and, and lead us in that song that I know you've chosen that will, will help us uh, approach the table.